Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. Greetings and salutations. It's August 7th, 2019, otherwise known as New Comic Book Day, and welcome to the Talking Comics Podcast. You're listening to episode number 402. Wow. I am your host, Steve Say, and joining me this week are Mr. Bob Ryer. Go into the chapel and we're... <laughs> Journeyman Joey Bracino is here. Gonna get married and we're... And... Occupying the fourth chair this week is Spencer and Locke and going to the chapel co-creator, David Pepos. Hello, David. Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, thank you. Bob said it. Our pleasure. <laughs> so Sarah and Jess are out this week and it is David keeping it warm for us. Uh, David's going to be hanging out with us for the duration of this week's show which will include lightning rounds, a bit of open discussion, and of course, an interview with David about his upcoming four-issue miniseries from Action Lab's Danger Zone, Going to the Chapel. Yeah. Uh, we've all read a good deal of it, but we're not uh, going to spoil anything, so don't worry. Uh, we're going to keep the interview to uh, issue one, no final pages only, um, but be sure to pick it up. Speaking of picking it up, David, when does the first issue of Going to the Chapel hit comic book stores? Yeah, first issue hits comic shops nationwide September 4th, and you can still pre-order it. Uh, you can call your local comic shop before Monday, August 12th, with the code uh, JUL191409, uh, 10 and 11. What that is your... Oh, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say, that is so important for people to remember with Newer books, miniseries, returning series. Yes, it's how stores know what they should be getting instead of just they're trying out one. Hey, all of a sudden I've got an order for six or eight or ten. Maybe I should try fifteen. It gives everyone a chance, creators included. Yes, I, I, I can tell you if it's anything like my previous books, uh, stores tend to underorder my books. So really tell your store that you want going to the chapel uh, issue one in issue two, which are both available for pre-order uh, because I have the feeling if you don't pre-order it, you're going to show up to your shop and it's going to be sold out. Yeah. That's a bummer because Spencer Unlocked is like one of the most original things we've come across here on the podcast mm -hmm. in a while. It happens all the time. Every single issue uh, uh, people, they, they sell out most stores sell out day one and they have to reorder. So, uh, uh, learn from their mistakes. Pre-order go into the chapel today. Exactly. <laughs> David, I'm curious. Uh, this is not a part of your interview, but what are your phone bills like when you have a book coming out? I know that you spend a lot of time calling around to the different shops. 
Yeah, I um, I I call a lot, and thank goodness I've got like I've got like a good phone plan. Um, you know, I, I I will say going to the chapel, my 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 phone calls have been a little different than than Spencer and Locke uh, too, only because the books literally daisy chained into each other. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been I've been contacting a lot of retailers um, and uh, uh, really just encouraging people not to sleep on this book uh, because. Uh, yeah, it's an action-packed rom-com, and I know that kind of cuts against the grain of the direct market, but um, I guarantee this is the kind of rom-com that everybody's going to find something to enjoy in. Mm-hmm. I agree. All righty. Uh, we've got more about going to the chapel coming up later, but for right now, we have a bunch of books to talk about this week, so we better get started Bob, would you care to dazzle us with a lightning round? I don't know if I'm going to dazzle, but I'll give it a shot. Oh, you're going to lightning round it. (laughs) Every week. (laughs) Come on back. All right. I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you, Bob, and go. Well, I'm going to open and close with hopefully spoiler-free reviews. Uh, Anything in the middle, you've been warned. So. Making Friends, Back to the Drawing Board by Kristen Gudsnock is a wonderful continuation of the story of Danny Radley, the girl with the magical sketchbook. As last time, there's lots of humor and heart, and with mean girl Kara vying for Madison's friendship, things get even more complicated. Not to fail to mention the addition of clones, pokeballs, or pickyballs as they are here, mind-wiping t-shirts, magical dogs, and rainbow barf. Well, this one has everything you need. Uh, We're hoping to have Kristen on soon to talk about the book once everyone around here has read it as well. Captain America number 12 by Ta-Nehisi Coates, Adam Kubert, Matt Miller, tells a story that we've seen before, that of Captain America no more, in quotes, but it's told in such a beautifully nuanced way that it feels absolutely fresh, and particularly apropos considering today's highly charged political landscape. The additions of the Doors of Liberty truly centers a major theme of this series, and here quoting Sharon Carter, The dream is old, older than Captain America, and the dream is what matters. Even if the shield is tarnished, even if Captain America is tarnished, the dream is eternal. Add in twin cliffhangers, and this is one of the best in Mr. Coates' run. Marvel team-up number four by Clint McElroy, Iguara, Felipe Sobrero, and Clayton Cowles brings Captain Marvel into team with Ms. Marvel. On an investigation into Kree technology being stolen from the damage control warehouses. Nicely tying together events from both those series, plus Margaret Stoll's life of Captain Marvel. This was a great beginning to the arc. If only for the sequence of Carol trying to convince Kamala's parents to de-ground her. Ahead of the relaunch of Future Foundation, I went back and reread the Matt Fraction, Mike and Laura Allred FF. And it was more delightful than ever. Across 16 issues, plus a link up with Fantastic Four 16... FF had one overreaching arc, sort of doubly centered on Victor Von Doom's new plan to conquer the world, as well as how that ties into a personal matter with the leader of the Future Foundation, Scott Lang, as Doom was responsible for the death of his daughter, Cassie. Yes, I did say Scott Lang, for those who came in late or forgot, it has been a while, because in Matt Fraction's main Fantastic Four title, the team, along with Franklin Valeria, are headed into space. And although Reed figures they'll only be gone for four Earth minutes, he wants to be a Fantastic Four ready to protect the Earth. He tests each of his team to select their own replacement. Scott Lang is Reed's choice, 
Sue selects Medusa. Ben goes with the She-Hulk. And Johnny, well, he forgets about the meeting until the last minute and then nominates his current girlfriend, pop singer Darla Deering, who would soon become Ms. Thing. Uh, adding them to Jonathan Hickman's FF cast of Alex Power, Dragon Man, Anime Villain, and Wu of the Uhari, Artie and Leech, uh, the Clone of the Wizard, Bentley 23, and of course the Moloids, Mick, Court, Torg, and Tong, especially Tong. Matt Fraction and the Almighty Allreds brought forth a series of great fun, but that also had wonderful depth behind it, virgin relationships, personal revelations, and wonderful nods to the Stan and Jack era. Highly recommend that you do yourself a favor and check out the Fraction Allred FF. Um, finally, and hopefully spoiler-free, a quick note on Paper Girls 30. I was torn in that before reading this finale, I didn't know how I wanted this special series to conclude. As it turned out, this issue, this issue story was exactly it. Huge tip of the cap to Brian K. Vaughan, Cliff Chang, Matt Wilson, Jared Pletcher for a great ride with the Paper Girls. That's it. Damn. All right. Did, let me ask you quite, Bob, do you have the mm -hmm. Fantastic Four Omnibus, the Fraction one? No. No, I have, okay. the, have all the single issues and the obviously the Fantastic Four parts of it, too. I'm wondering if the FF stuff is included in that or not. I'll have to go and take a the look. first couple of trades, they were actually mixing them together. Mm. And then they separate them out, and then they come back together at the end. If you remember issue 16 of the two books, Fantastic Four, the first two-thirds of that book finishes up their story. First two-thirds of the FF, their arc, and then the two come together as they have a barbecue on the moon. <laughs> and, it's, and it's alternate angles of the various conversations across the two books. You need to really lay them down side by side wow. and, and read them. It was just beautifully done. I forgot about that. Okay. And, paper and Girls. Yeah, well, paper oh, go girls, ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's just what, what Matt Fraction did, you know, following Jonathan Hickman, who did an amazing three years worth of run, what Matt Fraction did was it was more adventure, less action was the quote that they that was flowing around about the book and in the book itself. Mm -hmm. And you had the the family dynamic in the one book as a the FF Fantastic Four, so I don't confuse things, goes sailing off into space to cure a problem they're having. And then you have this FF book, which is a just crazy fun book that still has that depth to it with, with Scott's old storyline. The fact that, that Matt Fraction was also sort of lining up guest shots, that things were happening for issue, issue 13 has the red ghost and his super apes. Well, in Stan Jack's FF 13, yeah, that's where they appeared first too. And he did all that sort of stuff, tons of history. It's one of my favorite runs on the title across the 50 something years I've been reading it. Damn. Yeah. I have to find some time in between uh, weeks to go back mm -hmm. and read that stuff. Uh, Joey, Girls, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, Joey or, or David. Um, Joey, I know you're trade waiting for Paper Girls. David, do you read Paper Girls? No, I'm actually behind on it. Um, I've heard great things about the finale, um, so I definitely do need to go back and do a catch up. Uh, but this, yeah, I, uh, I, it's on my list. I just haven't gotten to uh, it. Should I take my headphones off right now? Is that what you're saying? No, no, uh, no. no. I'm not gonna, I, honestly, like, I read it. I read it just last night, right before I went to bed, and so I'm still processing what uh, what I read. I actually read 
the whole final arc over again just to to kind of get the ramp up, mm-hmm. reminding myself of just how absolutely brilliant the uh, issue number twenty eight is. Uh, Bob, that's the one where they have the the four stories all going at once, and you're yes. reading it down the page. Mm-hmm. That issue is such a rush. Like I, I I put that down last night, and I was just like, "Wow." Brom was like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "I just it's paper read girl. one of the most. <laughs> I just read Paper Girl." She's like, "Did you finish it?" I'm like, "No, I, that wasn't even the issue I was supposed to read." I'm like, "I'm reading this stuff over again, and I'm just reminding myself of how just." crazy orchestrated that this book is and how it all comes together. Anyway, I will not spoil anything about issue number 30. Like I said, I'm still kind of processing it. The one thing I will say is that I was expecting there to be some kind of a twist, some kind of alternative, whatever. And there's something really beautiful and and quite brilliant about a series that's kind of been telling you how it's going to end for a very long time. And then it ends just that way. And 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 it's it's really, really quite amazing um and surprising. The, the, yeah, there is a there are a couple of surprises in that they tease a few other things while they're at it. Mm-hmm. So it's they're not twists as we've come to expect every issue had these amazing cliffhangers. Right. But there there are some things you, you, you're going for, and there's a line I'd love to quote, but I won't. I know, the, I know the line you're talking it's about. It's right near the end, right? And it wrecked me. It completely wrecked me. Mm-hmm. And again, here's a book that from moment one just seemed, oh, it's a high concept. It's going to be one of these sort of sci-fi things. No, it was something so special. It is so about friendship and growing up and what all those things mean, what life means in general. So he had this, all this crazy timey-wimey stuff, but it is so coming-of-age story. It's a slice-of-life story. It's a heroine's journey story. It is everything mm-hmm. at once. As so many of Brian K. Vaughan's saga, we could say the same sorts of things about. Right. And just an amazing, amazing run that came to a really lovely end. It's a coming-of-age story told throughout the ages. Ooh, that could be on a trade paperback. Yeah, quote it. Uh, super enjoyed it. We'll, we'll talk about it more. Um, when everyone's late. caught up. Yeah, when everyone's <laughs> caught up or maybe toward the end of the year. Oh, yeah. We'll I think see. So. Uh, just very special from beginning to end. Magnificent series. And, uh, yeah. All right. So for you, Bob, that was Making Friends 2, Back to the Drawing Board, Captain America number 12, Marvel Team Up number 4, FF, The Fraction and All Reds, and Paper Girls number 30, the final issue. Ah. Losing so many books this year. Yeah. And we're coming up on a couple more just around the corner. Oh, it's Woo! killing me. It's killing me. Uh, let's talk about some more books. But before we talk about books, uh, well, I don't know what you're the hell you're going to do first. Joey, would you like to do a lightning round? I'm going to do the TV stuff first. Hey. I'm excited to hear about this. We've been watching the second season of Dark, and I'm I'm waiting to get to uh, the show you're about to talk about. So I'm going to put five minutes on the clock for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
go. Okay, so I'm going to start with uh, The Boys, season one. I watched all of season one of The Boys, just dropped uh, recently on Amazon's, uh, Amazon Prime. I almost said Amazon Studios, whatever. Um, Eric Kripke's television adaptation of Garth Ennis and Derek Robertson's comic series uh, from Dynamite, originally Wildstorm, uh, from way back when. Not way back when, like 10 years ago. Anyway, the pitch is this. For those unfamiliar, Vought is a super corporation that owns, markets, and monetizes super-powered peoples. Because of their immense wealth and celebrity, these soups are corrupt, arrogant, and hedonistic a-holes who don't care who gets shat upon as they quote-unquote save the world. Worst among them are the Seven, the premier superhero team led by Homelander, a literal American flag-wearing Superman corollary who is a total D-bag, but his smile and blonde hair play really well to the demo, as they say. In the face of this superpower, uh, in the face of the superpower twits, Billy Butcher, played by a wonderful Carl Urban, a.k.a. Oh, Judge Dredd. Judge Dredd! Uh... <laughs> Uh, leads the boys, a vigilante group committed to revealing their uh, soup's corruption uh, and deep sixing a few of them along the way, even if it involves shoving a bomb up one's bum. Um, body, blisteringly subversive and totally engrossing, Amazon's adaptation, okay, has all the violence <laughs> and wit of Ennis's book and also maintains that all too important satire that Ennis actually is known for. I think a lot of people see uh, Garth Ennis's runs on Punisher and Preacher and they focus a lot on the hyper-masculinity and the violence of it all, um, but we should really be paying attention to the satire with which he's negotiating those ideas. I think Amazon Studios and Eric Kirk do a really good job of doing that uh i also think a lot of people on the interwebs are like if you hate superhero movies you'll oh, love no. the boys and i just don't really understand where that's coming from uh like get over yourselves uh this is its own thing <laughs> it's it is about superheroes it's about satirizing everything about that it's also being about subversive about that as well and telling a really dark story about fame and celebrity um, and everything that that could lead someone to do. Um, the cast here is superb. The whole series is totally enthralling. I watched all eight episodes in like two days. I couldn't stop. It's really great. Check it out. Also really great is um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 6 just Ooh. finished. Um, ABC also just finished shooting the series finale that will end next year's Season 7. Um, so we're coming towards the end here. Season 6 was a tight 13 episodes and explored the aftermath of the death of Phil Coulson again at the end oh. of Season 5. <laughs> um, except everyone was super shocked when a new character named Sarge showed up from space with Coulson's face. Yup, it's crazy. Uh, the whole season explored Sarge's mission to kill this weird non-corporeal alien named Izel. Um, Izel wants to take over the Earth so that they can infest it. There are these non-corporeal beings. It's wild all the way through. There's zombies. There's these chronomonomicons that are like space alien weird things. Uh, they also take space drugs at one point, and there's a whole well, like 20 go. minutes. That's the total trip. It's wild. Uh, the cast is wonderful, and what's really great about, you know, we're on season six, and the show has really found its footing in recent years by playing to both the hard kind of sci-fi edge of of um, Shield and everything, 
and also really allowing the cast to breathe and do some really wonderful kind of character beats here. Mignon Wen is awesome. Chloe Bennett is awesome. Um, Elizabeth Henstridge and Ian DeKestiker are great as well as uh, Gemma Simmons and uh, Leo Fitz. Um, the two-hour season finale last Friday was genuinely shocking and ended on a remarkable cliffhanger that will change the face of the Marvel Universe <laughs> forever. Um, very sad to, to see this series go and I look forward to their final season next year. Um, very quickly, I read Manor Black number one by Cullen Bunn, Brian Hurt, and Tyler Crook. Uh, so we like this other book here on the pod with Black in the title called Black Magic. Remember that? Ooh, yes. um, this book is also about witches, I think. I don't know. There's more <laughs> horror craziness from the team behind Harrow County, and it's just as pretty and eerie as you'd think given the creative team. Uh, there's some ghosts here, some black arts, mages and stuff. There was literally a jump scare on page three and I screamed out loud. It was wild. Uh, <laughs> loved it. Great first issue. Worth checking out. Last thing I'll talk about, which I'm sure will lead into a little bit of discussion here, is Powers of X number one. Uh, Jonathan Hick- Hickman and R.B. Silva here. Um with Adriano de Benedetto, uh, Marta Gracia, Clayton Kells, and Tom Muller. Um, so we talked about House of X last week, talked about how it's a, it's a tough jumping on point for readers if they want to read X-Men for the first time. Um, Powers of X isn't that forgiving either. I still find it to be incredibly entertaining. I also just realized why it's called Powers of X, because the powers are exponents because this whole book is about the exponentially increasing generations of X across time. Yep. This book Uh, leaps back and forth across a thousand years of X history. X to the zero power (laughs) is the dream. X to the first power is year 10 of the X-Men, which is like the world in which we live in now. X squared is year 100, the <laughs> war. X to the third power is year 1000, or the ascension. Yup, this is crazy. Hickman takes us to each generation and shows us just what's up with our hated and feared mutant brothers and sisters. We open with Xavier meeting Moira in what has been deemed the most significant moment in X history because it initiates the dream, a dream that, well, everything is a little bit cryptic here and we don't really know what's going on. Uh, we flash forward to X1, which was set up in House of x from two weeks ago with krakoa habitats and the cures and all that but most of the uh, book is dedicated to x2 the war in which mutants that have been genetically engineered over time by mr sinister sinister because who the hell trusts mr sinister am i right to fight What's the his war name? i mean please right they've obviously been betrayed and are being yeah. hunted by the nimrod oh god guys oh, no. nimrod is here that's a throwback to like 1992 oh my god um it's wild we fast forward like a thousand years and it's damn this book is crazy i'm into it i really am i understand the concern it is a lot it is a lot <laughs> yeah it is that hickman is asking um on these first two issue ones and the cover price is the cover price I think a lot of people are excited about the X-Men. Uh, and I think that part of it is what Hickman is doing here, and we can talk about this, is is playing to some of the kind of core features of the X side of the Marvel Universe. That crazy time travel stuff, that hard sci-fi while also maintaining that kind of little political stance and talking about sovereignty and talking about being hated and feared and talking about prejudice too. It's very subtle. I will say this. 
it is a lot. And you do have to read these books multiple times. Is that a bad thing? I don't know. Thank God this book is weekly, though. That's what I'll say. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Because it, I, if I had to wait a month, Jesus Christ, I would be out of here so fast. Um, and I would just wait for these books to get collected. Because I love being able to pick up every week a new chapter of this. And that's my lightning round. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to hear. I want to hear what David uh, has been thinking of these X books. My contribution is that I was kind of hanging out at Camp Sarah this past week when I was reading this because holy crap, I was so confused. A Powers I, of X or how's yeah, it? Yeah, the new one, whatever the new one well, is, Powers this of is, X. This is what I said last week too because like, remember Hugh was like, do I have to read anything before reading House of X or Power of X? And I responded to him and I was like, no, because nothing is set up. You just jump right in and it's there. <laughs> I mean, I read House of X and like it was a little bit tough, but I was like, I can do this. I can hang like I, I, you, you've got this, Steve. It's going to be fine. And then this one came out and I was just like, duh, what? <laughs> so still had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I look forward to reading this multiple times to uh, to get a firm grasp on what the hell Hickman is up to. David, you have been checking out uh, both House and Powers of X. What do you think? I, I, I'm, I'm in it. I'm, I'm in it to win it. I love that the, these books. I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because the way that I've seen Hickman write a lot of these team books, it's a little counterintuitive. It's less about individual team members and more of sort of how he's going to kind of shift the world around them. And I feel like that approach really lends itself well to the X-Men as opposed to necessarily his work on Avengers. And so it's, I'm, I'm really excited. I kind of liked the way that uh, the X-Men are sort of building a new habitat for themselves, almost sort of wielding evolution itself as a weapon uh, in terms of uh, Krakoa as being their sort of mobile base of operations. Um, And I kind of like this idea uh, in powers of X you know, the X-Men are no stranger to dystopian storylines. I mean, we've seen it from Days of Future Past, Here Comes Tomorrow, uh, Battle of the Atom, just yeah. to throw a lot there off the top of my head. Um, but, you know, the thing that I find interesting is the X-Men as a concept are all about, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to seek justice in, in some form or fashion, whether it's, uh, you know, justice for sort of fallen mutants or sort of bringing in renegade mutants in for their crimes um, or protecting mutants that from being hated and feared by the rest of the world. But, you know, there's kind of a question of, is evolution itself kind of a, a, a repudiation of the concept of justice? Uh, you know, there's sort of the conquered and the conquered, uh, and, or the conquerors and the conquered, I should say. Uh, and so the question is, you know, uh, that I'm seeing in Powers of X, we see this dystopian futures, and maybe they don't find justice. Um, or maybe the, the sort of the arc of justice is so long that it's going to take generation upon generation upon generation to finally see this thing through. Um, that's a that's a pretty dizzying scale, I think. That's that's really ambitious, and yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I love the world building that Hickman brings to it. Um, you know, I, I know some critics have cried foul over the text pages, uh, where it is very much the epitome of telling rather than showing. <laughs> I I, I kind of like sort of 
the reader having to kind of fill in the gaps a little bit when you're like, oh, you know, mutant clones created by Mr. Sinister. And yeah. you're like, oh, who thought of that? That's a terrible idea. Uh, and very quickly learning, oh, yeah, no, you know, you can't, Tiger can't change its stripes and neither can Mr. Sinister. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I kind of like this very layered three-dimensional world um, and sort of seeing what I've seen of previews of House of X number two, um, I think Hickman's doubling down. I think he's layering in some really cool stuff. Well, I mean, like, that's uh, even more so than his work on Fantastic Four and mm-hmm. Into the Avengers 2. I think that, like, he's come back to do the X-Men and he's layering in more and more of this kind of inter intermedia way of approaching the story. And I like this idea that you're pitching, this uh, th- this idea that, like, the cyclical nature of this battle against a world that hates hears them. I like how you said this long arc of justice, right? Like yeah. what makes the X-Men stories so sad is that they are, they are synonymous with these dystopian storylines in which they're still fighting the same goddamn fight, you know, mutants work is never done. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, thing, the thing that I find it found most interesting about powers of X is you know, we've seen the trope already of humans sort of fighting back against mutants and whether or not mutants survive is always kind of up in the air. But then, you know, the idea of justice we see in Powers of X, soon humankind gets wiped out uh, and then they become sort of supplanted. Yeah, they call it like a uh, human robot or something like that. Like human, I can't remember the exact term, but that's the language that Hickman uses in the book. Um, but I, I, it's just, there's a lot of really cool stuff I think Hickman's playing around with. And I think the X-Men, I think, have needed a very deliberate approach uh, in, in, in recent years. I think they've kind of jumped from event to event to event and re, relaunch to relaunch to relaunch. And it has felt a little sometimes like it's been jogging in place. And so I feel like Hickman's, he's drawn a lot from Grant Morrison. You know, he's drawn a lot yep. from classic Claremont. Um, but he's taking kind of his own big scale approach to it. Um, you know, whereas Morrison was kind of looking mostly at mutant culture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's looking at mutant effect over thousands of years across the known universe. Um, you know, with, with, uh, you know, once you have the X-Men hiding out in asteroid K or like being refugees in the Shi'ar, uh, universal system, the, the, the limits are pretty limitless here. I'd say <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's it's a nice scale, and I think I was just thinking earlier today. As a child of the '90s, you know, I, I kind of came of age in the '90s, and sort of, you know, I grew up reading Spider-Man and X-Men as sort of the two big franchises of, of Marvel. And so, in a week where House of X and Absolute Carnage are coming out, um, it kind of makes me feel a little bit like a kid again. It's very exciting. I'm over here getting an education. Just li- listening in. <laughs> Bob, where are you at uh, with this stuff? Are you sold yet? Nope. I haven't even begun. <laughs> so I may have to. This does sound interesting. I love it. I'd be curious, though, if you if you read the whole thing from beginning to end in one shot. I'd be really curious how you felt about it. I sort of checked out on the X-Men many, many years ago, right around the time, I guess, that Claremont left. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1994? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was good up until then. I was uh, just sort of plot lines never seemed to resolve. Some of them were interesting. Some just 
kept coming back around, snake eating its own tail sort of thing. And somebody should do a podcast telling you about everything that's happened in the X Men since nineteen ninety. Oh sure. What's the what's the well, Jay and Miles? Jay and Miles, Jay and Miles yeah. like the X Men, uh, but they don't do it like chronologically. Oh, that's too bad. It's like waking uh, up from a coma, and then and, and the first thing you're like, "What happened to the X Men?" And they're like, "Are you sitting down? Let me tell you about yeah. everything that happened to the X Men since '94." Now, now, wasn't Krakoa in the backyard in Westchester a couple of years ago in when they were in Wolverine was... and the X Men? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay, yep. so what happened to him? Well, now he's freaking spinning out cures for aging <laughs> and, and mental illness. <laughs> he's okay. evolved. He's uh, a Homo Sapien Superior Island or something like that. There you go. It's the new Hickman World Order, man. He's resetting the clock. He's got a big whiteboard in his office. Really big one. <laughs> Hickman's work is... um. You ever see that uh, that meme with Charlie Day with all the strings attached to the the points on the, the bullet board that he has? Yeah. It, that's what his stuff reminds me of, big time. Except we're Charlie Day. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, David, why don't we stick with you for a bit? You want me to put five minutes on the clock for you and you can uh, tell us about some books you've been reading? Do it. Um, all right. I'm going to put five minutes on here for you and go. Yeah. So, um, well, first off, I, I, I just watched The Boys as well, and I really enjoyed it. And I feel like uh, uh, the character of Homelander, I think, kind of stole the whole season for me. Um, he's just kind of he's so amazingly evil, but he's able to kind of shift gears between like this awful homicidal guy to someone who's like halfway charming. Um, I really like that a ton. Uh, I, I think that was a that was a surprisingly fun series for me. I didn't really have a whole lot of high hopes for it. I think that the book itself is sometimes a little much for me. Um, mm-hmm. But I really, I think, sold it really well. Um, even if they could not get um, uh, 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 Simon Pegg to play uh, uh, Huey. He just had to play Huey's uh-huh. dad. Um, but... Uh, uh, I actually, my big comics read of, uh, of the past week, I uh, caught up on Die uh, uh, from mm-hmm. Image. Uh, Kieran Gillen and, and, and Stephanie Hans. Uh, oh, they're killing it. I, that's like, like, Kieran's one of those writers who's so smart that it makes me angry, like, every time <laughs> I read stuff, uh, because I'm like, well, I'm never going to be that smart. Uh, it's just, now, it's never going to happen. I'm going to have to live, like, multiple lives in order to, like, amass that kind of writing skill. Um, and it's just, you know, I, I like this sort of it meets Jumanji meets Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, and <laughs> I, I, uh, the artwork is beautiful at times. It kind of reminded me a little bit of Alex Ross, just that kind of very painterly. Oh yeah. Very dramatic and moody. Um, but yeah, it was just really, you know, it's, it, it, it's, I, uh, it's also one of those stories that makes me mad because I know it's going to go on for a long time. um it's it's i don't see this being self-contained i see this sort of being you know it's probably gonna be a long-running thing you know wicked and the divine is winding down so i can see this is kieran's new flagship book and good on him he deserves it it's 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 beautifully written beautifully illustrated uh just makes me mad that he can be so talented in so many different genres um and you know I've, i've talked a little bit at length about house of x and powers of x I'm really enjoying that series. Um, that has been that's been super fun. Um, what else have I been reading? Um, I was fortunate enough to get to read an early copy of Absolute Carnage number one, mm-hmm. and 
and oh. uh, terrific. That is a terrific book. Um, that like Donny Cates is another guy who I I, I I am so in awe of his talents, and I'm so jealous of his talents because that guy, uh, from all accounts, writes like a machine. That guy writes super detailed, super expansive treatments in a very fast time frame, which uh, I can do all that in a very slow time frame. <laughs> um, so, uh, and you know what? I think Absolute Carnage, it starts off with a, an amazing flex. Um, it's uh, it's it's uh, a triple size issue. And, oh, wow. And it's, it's I think I think if if more event books started this way, um, I think... I think I'd be a bigger fan of event books to be, to be honest. Um, I know they're kind of, uh, an unwieldy beast just, you know, cause you have to juggle all these characters and you have to sort of clear things with all these different offices. And there are a lot of different sort of things that, you know, your editors need you to hit. But, uh, Donnie and, and Ryan Stegman really killed it on that book. Um, I was just really impressed. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of, for for those of us who grew up in the '90s and you know uh, we're, we're reading Maximum Carnage as uh, as kids, um, it kind of feels like the dream of the '90s is back. Uh, <laughs> um, what else have I been reading? Uh, Batman: Last Night on Earth, uh, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a fun book because it doesn't it doesn't really have higher pretensions. It's just Scott and Greg just having fun, you know, deconstructing the DC universe. Um, it's a series that, you know, it takes a tenure, tenure like Scott has had to earn that kind of book, uh, because you've already seen him go through all these very tight focused storylines. And this is, this is just them having fun, just kind of being wild and just saying, you know, oh, what, what would happen if we had like a post apocalypse where like unknown soldier is fighting like mutated animal men and there's like a, a zombie swamp thing running around. Like it's, it's not a focused read it's kind of very all over the place but it's by a pair of creators that like have definitely earned it um i also read justice league dark annual number one um uh, james tynan and rom v were teaming up with gillam march and uh that was terrific um rom v is another one of those writers uh like karen gillen and I, I i believe they're buddies uh the guy is like frighteningly intelligent i i met him at uh, new york comic-con last year and i was just kind of blown away by how smart he was and um he was doing the dialogue duties on justice league dark and i think if dc doesn't pick him up in the next six months i'm i'm gonna eat my hat Uh, (laughs) he's he's just got a really just a a wonderfully poetic way of writing things um this annual is about the parliament uh flowers uh picking the new champion of the green and so uh, they sort of pick a, a, a scientist similar in the, in the realm of Alcon, um, but uh, he grows up, he's got like, he's got flowers for eyes and he's like really like spindly and weird looking. Ooh, um, and he, he starts stalking his ex-wife and starts making flower children for her, um, like actual children that are made out of flowers. So like in a week they start like fading away. Um, it's really creepy. It's really weird. Gillum March does a great job at it. Um, I know the guy is typically known for some of his more like erotic style art, but he does such a creepy looking like flower person um, that the guy should really be doing like a, somebody should be putting him in a horror book like yesterday. Um, 
But yeah, that's like a team of three people who I really dig all of their stuff individually. And so putting them sort of, you know, in, in, uh, in one book together, it's, it's really rad. Nice. Damn. I have questions. I have questions. Absolute carnage. Is there a checklist of books in the back with multiple tie-ins? Look, um, I'm just curious as to how large the absolute carnage, like how how far-reaching is it? What what kind of uh, book load am I looking at here? You know, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure, but let me um, just see what I got. Um, Comes in a steamer trunk. <laughs> uh, there's no checklist that I'm aware of. Okay, things are looking up. So that you know that. Uh, it's one of those things can't 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 promise anything one way or the other. Just just know what I've seen. Mm-hmm. No. But um, I, I I wouldn't be shocked if it if if there was any tie-ins in in Donnie's like main Venom title, um, which has been awesome. It's been like honestly, I've been loving that book. Um, you know, some of it some of it is because I think it shares certain similar themes with Spencer and Locke. Um, and, uh, you know what? I'm kind of like, I, you know, if I, if I can compare my book to like Moon Knight and Venom, I'm, I'm down for it. I, I got no problems with that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Donnie, Donnie and Ryan, uh, Ryan in particular, I've been really impressed, uh, seeing how he's grown over the mm-hmm. last few years. Um, you know, because I, I, I remember seeing him doing, um, uh, a She-Hulk book. Um, I think that was his breakout book and I loved it. And then he sort of hit the big leagues with Superior Spider-Man. But seeing him really kind of grow into, I think, such a confident storyteller and Venom has been really cool. He's working with an inker, uh, J.P. Mayer, which I think is their really great team working together. And um, Frank Martin is their colorist. And I think just, you know, there's so much that it was. And this was a big shock for me, jumping from writing reviews to actually making comics, is that like you don't realize every single member of the team, how much they influence each other. And, um, you know, I, I think Devin Lewis is the uh, editor behind uh, Venom. And, you know, he did, you know, if, if, if that was his call, putting all these people together, he did a really good job at it. Cause honestly, like this is a team that from not just the writer and not just the penciler, but the inker and colorist and letterer are all doing really good work. It's sort of, elevating each other into something that's a little bit greater than the sum of their parts. Damn. I love having creators on for the long haul because we get really good stuff like this. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, David, did you check out war of the realms when it was coming out? You mentioned events before I did. I did. And you know, I, so I, how do I say this? So I, I really enjoyed how it ended. I, I think Sometimes there's a tendency, and I, I've I've heard sort of apocryphal stories about this for for other events as well. Is that sometimes creators will pitch something for their particular book, and sort of in lieu of any other better ideas coming up, that event, which should have been just for one particular book, kind of expands across an entire line. Um, and so I would be speculating. If, if I thought War of the Realms was one of those books. So I'm not going to do that. But what, what, I, what I'll say is I think 
War of the Realms, I enjoyed it the most when its focus was on Thor and Jane and 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 Loki and sort of the the the, the direct Thor family. Um, it was a little more all over the place for me once you started adding in like Daredevil or Punisher or Wolverine. Um, that said, there were certainly some really cool like Diamonds in the Rough. Um, Tom Taylor was kind of doing Tom Taylor. Somebody should be giving him like a new Avengers title already because. He did. Um, he did a tie-in for the Hunt for Wolverine that had mm-hmm. a lot of those Bendis era New Avengers characters. That Spider-Man, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Iron Man, uh, uh, and then sort of Wolverine is like the ghost of Wolverine. Um, and then they did it. I believe he had a, a series in War of the Realms as well. I think he did a Marvel Strike Force book or something like that. Uh, same thing. It had Cap, Luke Cage, Spider-Man, Wolverine. Uh, I think Iron Fist might have been a part of that group. Um, Tom Taylor really deserves one of those. And I, 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 I'm very curious. I would be shocked if, if he, he's like the next in line for like a Marvel or DC exclusive bid. And I'm kind of surprised that no one's offered him that yet. Or if he has, maybe he just hasn't accepted an offer yet. Um, but I guess that was my roundabout way of saying I, I really <laughs> liked it as a Thor storyline. Once you start adding in all the other characters it's it's hard to make all that work. I think it's already tough to have events that fit all of these characters just aesthetically. But then once you add in all the kind of mismatched designs of the Marvel Universe and then sort of throw a fantasy spin on it, it can be – it's a little bit more of a suspension of disbelief to, to engage with it. But I do think – I think Jason and uh, Jason Aaron and Russell Dodderman, they really stuck the landing with that. I, I loved that last issue, and I thought it was such a, a satisfying way to sort of wrap up Thor and Jane's overarching storylines over the last few years. Um, and uh, I'm really excited with uh, where Jason's going to take the character uh, characters in King Thor and, uh, and Valkyrie. Right on, man. But the good thing was his regular – Thor series was still centered on the Norse. Right. And so I, I really enjoyed and have all through all his run, the, the focuses shifting back and forth of the, uh, as his cast of characters would change and, and love that. So in the, in the event, I, I, I see what you're saying and yeah. it, it, Occasionally, that I'd find a page like, "Oh yeah, the Punisher is kind of fun," but uh, let's get back to what we're doing. But on the whole, reading all all through it, I didn't read any of the tie-ins really. Mm-hmm. I, I kept it to Thor and the actual event. And I'm the non-event guy around here. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely have event burnout, but this one really worked for me. I will uh, say, uh, I you know, speaking of, of tie-ins, I will say, you know, who really killed it on his tie-in, uh, Brian Edward Hill. Uh, with uh, with with Lionel Yu on a Marvel Strike Force book that was like it was the Punisher with She-Hulk, Ghost Rider, and Blade. Uh, that was great. I would love to see Brian Hill take on either a, a book with that cast or even just a Punisher book. I think, boy, he would like get 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 him the right artist, and boy, he would just mm-hmm. kill that series. He's a he's a writer. I'm I, I'm biased. I've been friends with Brian for a long time. Um, I, but seeing he is really like leveled up in the last, like two years or so. Um, you know, I, maybe was working with Warren Ellis on, on, on Michael Cray 
or maybe it was sort of just the culmination of his work on Postal. But boy, just Brian really just like made it to that next level. And I just, I, I've been really digging a lot of what he's been writing lately. A uh, goofy tie-in were the Squirrel Girl books, as you, you could imagine. The <laughs> the Frost Giants are invading Alberta, so she heads up there with the Squirrel God of the North Squirrel God of Chaos and Gossip, <laughs> and fight Frost Giants who are sing, sitting around singing Frost Giant songs, and that one of them's named Debbie, and the other one's dressed like a sailor. It just tells you what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, they have that series had a lot of uh, a lot of cool tie-ins. The one with uh, the road trip with Thor's uh, Thor's new sister or half sister or whatever um, that was a blast as well. I did not read the one that you were talking about though. I think that one might have passed me by. I'll have to check it out when uh, when it gets collected. Yeah, it was it was it was really good. I don't I don't know if it was a one shot or if they did a couple of issues with it, but I I I, I know the the issue that I read was was really terrific. All right. Uh, all right. I think it's my turn. I'm going to get my lightning round out of the way. Uh, I have two different books from two very different sides of the street. So brace yourselves. All right. I'm put five minutes on the clock and go. Okay. So I read Bad Gateway. Bad Gateway, created by Simon Hanselman and published by Fantagraphics. Here we go. Perpetually drunk and high, lovable degenerates Meg and Mog have drifted through a life full of raucous antics and free of consequences. But their heavy drug use, once a gateway to, to adventure, has begun to take a grim psychological toll. As her unstable lifestyle finally catches up to her, Mog must turn her past to un, uh, must turn her past to uncover the roots of her self-destructive habits that have led her down this dark path. Uh, Bad Gateway is the fourth collection in Hanselman's Meg and Mog series, which include Mega Hex, Meg and Mog in Amsterdam, and One More Year. The latest chapter in this depraved and delinquent series continues Hanselman's tradition of not being able to answer the question, "Hey, what are you reading?" in any kind of comfortable manner whatsoever. Meg, Mog, Owl, Werewolf Jones, and Booger are some of the rudest characters I've met in comics, and yet I couldn't help but get excited when I saw this new volume sitting on the shelf. My hand literally shot out in front of me and snatched it without even a second thought. I didn't even look at the the cover price. I just threw it on the table. I was like, I'll take this too. Um, Okay, here we go. As I made my way through Bad Gateway, I got to see characters I've come to enjoy at their lowest points ever. Some of the highlights of this volume include Meg giving birth to a murder of crows as a way of remaining on disability, Mog getting a job at a cat cafe only to be fired after a heavy petting session gave him a red rocket, and Werewolf Jones falling off the wagon only to become a victim of chemsex. Again. Each chapter is, is, in essence, one psychological trauma after another, as well as a reminder that perhaps all your personal life choices haven't been that bad after all. We've all heard of the phrase, it could always be worse. I now have a new phrase that I carry with me in, well, you could always be Meg or Mog. 
Overdoses, the looming and constant presence of werewolf penis, a blatant child abuse issue aside, Hanselman has <laughs> also has a way of humanizing these repulsive characters. And when those heartfelt moments hit, they hit hard. Despite the characters being self-destructive beyond recognition, there's a strange comfort in the way that they depend on one another just to make it through the day. And honestly, I think this is a large part of what keeps me coming back to this series, that underneath all the needles, scat jokes, and depravity is a lot of heart. To summarize, Bad Gateway, uh, read it at your own discretion, and definitely don't leave it on your coffee table at your next get-together. I've got a minute and 56 seconds. Dear Justice League, uh, Joey talked about this a couple weeks ago. All right, written by Michael Northrop with illustrations by Gustavo Duarte. Does Superman ever make a mistake? Does Wonder Woman listen to her parents? Does Aquaman smell like fish? The answers to all these questions and more can be found in Dear Justice League, an adorable all-ages graphic novel all about superheroes checking their email and responding to some inquisitive inquiries from their young fans. It's written with plenty of goodly-natured humor and even has some valuable life lessons to teach. The characters and gags completely leap off the page thanks to Duarte's Disney meets Spumco art style. For those of you who are like, what? Uh, Spunko was the art and animation house behind Ren and Stimpy. My favorite stories were Dear Superman, in which we witnessed the Cape Crusader hoping to extinguish one disaster after another, as even the Man of Steel can make a mistake and have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I also really enjoyed the Aquaman story, where Aquaman tries to combat a, a mysterious and possibly foul odor. Oh, and there's also the one where the Flash takes on a pair of bullies and turns the tables on their internet hate speech shenanigans. It's a super light read that's got some cool previews in the back for other books coming out under the DC Zoom label. And if we get more books like this, I think the kids are going to be all right. There we go. That's my lightning round. I have 10 seconds left. Nicely done. I will definitely pick up that Dear Justice League book because I loved the free comic book day preview. It's really sweet. I had a lot of fun reading it. I sat on the couch in the basement. It was nice and cool and just kind of like laughed my ass off and went, you know, oh, every couple of minutes. The Wonder Woman story was great. Uh, Diana loves her cake. That was hysterical. And uh, there's a Hawkgirl story in there. There's one for Cyborg. There's one for Batman. And it's just a lot of fun. Definitely something to pick up for younger readers. Uh, I think they'll get a kick out of it. And the artwork is positively gorgeous. It really is kind of a marriage between Disney and the Spunko style. Just very, like, cherubic uh, faces and really, really big reactions to action and, and whatever's happening all around them. The Superman story is the one that you read, right, Joey? Yes, I think so. The one where he's uh, like, uh, he keeps crashing into things because he's on his phone. Yeah, it's like a domino effect. It's like so good. He, he starts, he starts the accident, and then the accident just keeps going. It's kind of like mousetrap, and it's happening all over Metropolis. And he's trying to stop one thing after another after another, while simultaneously like figuring out what he's going to write back to this kid in this email that he's received. And uh, just a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. a complete and total opposite from the Megan Mog series. You know, we, every now and again, people ask us, uh, when we ask for questions, like, what are our guilty pleasure books? And I'm always like, oh, I don't know. I don't really have any because I like, you know, I'm proud to like everything and whatever. 
the Megan Mog books are definitely my uh, go and read it somewhere and don't let anybody read over your shoulder kind of comic book reading for me. It is so crass and so rude. And sometimes I'm reading these books and I'm just like, what am I doing with myself and my time? But I sit there with a stupid smile on my face the whole time. And then there are like one or two moments where the characters get very serious amidst all this chaos. And I'm just like, oh my God, there's still people. So it's wonderful. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun. Megan fun is Bob. good. They sound awful though, Steve. Yeah. No, Bob, you would hate it. You would okay. hate it. You would absolutely hate it. You would you would be so mad at me if I asked you to read this book. Okay. Uh, I will say though, like the Fantagraphic style, their hardcovers are absolute quality, and uh, there are some like big spreads in this, like uh, painted spreads, and like mm-hmm. on the inside covers and stuff, where like there is no chaos, like it's all mountains and sunsets, and Aww. everything is serene, and like they're in a canoe, and like it's beautiful, and I'm just like, wow. This is not this book, but this is gorgeous. Yeah. So, see, did you ever watch Absolutely Fabulous? Yes. British comedy? Right. Well, they'd go on vacation to some lovely place, and then, you know, Eddie would sell her daughter off to white slavers. <laughs> yes. That is exactly, okay. that is exactly, there is a very, very good reason why it, it, part of the, the plot of this book is that Owl has moved out of the house, and Werewolf Jones comes to live with Megan Mogg and it, it, it creates even more uh, bad times for everybody. Uh, Owl is not in this book uh, almost at all. And, and I was really, really surprised by that. But given what happened to him at the end of book three, I definitely know why he's not hanging out anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's stuff like that, that I just, like I said, if, if you, if you really tried to sit down, I think I actually told you guys some of the stuff that happened the last time that I picked up these books. And uh, if I remember correctly, it did not go over well. There was a lot of silence. <laughs> so um, anyway, call it a guilty pleasure. Call it what you want. Uh, Bad Gateway is the newest book from the, the Meg, uh, Simon Hanselman's Megan Mog series. Also, like really, really well regarded, I think, in the, the comic book community. I see a lot of like pull quotes and stuff from from people about this series. And I'm almost a little shocked by the way that they describe it sometimes. David, have you ever checked out any of the Megan Mog books? No, uh, no. And actually I've been, it's been kind of interesting uh, hearing about them. Cause I was like, no, I, I haven't, I haven't heard about these books. And so it's a, it's a, I'm sure it's like uh, what uh, ordinary people think about when I start talking about the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so it's so rude, but like you, you're Meg is Meg is going to the disability office, right? And she's got these crows like stuffed underneath her dress because it's her backup plan to make sure that she gets to stay on disability. But you don't know that they're in there for like a good amount of pages. And you see this like ruffling underneath her dress and just like having the history with her and knowing what she's capable of. I just I sat there biting my nails for like 16 pages, just being like, oh, my God, I know she's going to have to use whatever's underneath there. And I kind of don't want to know what it is, but I totally want to know what it is. Show it to me. And then we found out. I was just like, oh, God, awful and wonderful at the same time. It is not a book you show to your kids or parents. All right. I'm done talking about Megan Mog. Sorry, Joey. 
All righty. Let's go into some open discussion. Bob. Okie dokie. Here we go. It's Fantastic Four number 12, which has true story is in it. So we'll get to that. So there's just so much deep Fantastic Four history linked into this issue that uh, I don't even know where to start. So I guess I'll start with the first story first, which is by Dan Slott, Sean Isaacs, Marcio Menez, and Joe Caramagna. It's about to be the one week in the year that Ben Grimm returns to his human form. And it's just in time for him to finally go with Alicia on their much-delayed honeymoon. By the way, this formula was the first problem solved by the Future Foundation back in Jonathan Hickman's Fantastic Four number 580 in 2010. And he first takes it in 584, which leads to some dire consequences, if you remember, Steve. Mm-hmm. 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 Anyway, the happy couple... They head off to a resort island, but their vacation is crashed, literally, by an ultra-maddened, though strangely different, Hulk. Needless to say, a Donnybrook ensues. Uh, another, by the way, by the way, the thing in the Hulk first clash back in the original Fantastic Four number 12 in March of 1963, and in the previously mentioned... Matt Fraction, Michael Moore, all read FF. Their issue 12 has a cover of Jennifer Walters, the She-Hulk, and Darla Deering, Ms. Thing on a battle cover, and they spar a few rounds in there, too. So it's all, it's so connected, it's crazy. On that connection front, the second story is our jumping-off point for the new Future Foundation by Jeremy Whitley and Will Robeson. And based on this wonderful setup, it's going to be a... Last. Our favorites from the Hickman Fraction Days are back, with adventure and humor in a lovely balance. We also get the addition of Alex Power's sister Julie from Power Pack and Runaways. And as their mission is to recover all the lost bits of their friend Owen Reese, the Molecule Man, it's sure there will be as much cosmic as comic. I love this beginning to end, even at four ninety nine. How about everybody else? <laughs> I will say this. I think I, I don't want to spoil it because I don't want to give away who it is. The the, the reveal <laughs> the slot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, we okay. So, spoilers. There's a villain in this book. Okay, it's a comic book. Superheroes, villains. I this has cemented this villain as being one of my favorites, like yeah. within the Marvel universe or or anywhere. They remind me of another villain that I, I really, really, really love. I'm not going to reveal, reveal them either because people then will guess it. But this was the book that I was reading through it. I was having a really, really good time. And I just, I got so excited when that page came and, and we found out kind of who was behind what was going on. And that's how I know when, when a character has really like had an impact on yeah. me. There's been a couple of stories with, with, uh, with this person uh, this year, and I just every time they show up, I, I get really jazzed. So that was fun. And the story overall, the the slot story with Thing and and their little honeymoon and everything is wonderful. And uh, talk about terrible timing. Yeah. So, uh, as for the FF stuff, I knew that Jeremy and his team were going to be blowing this out of the water. And even in this preview, they did not disappoint. 
uh, love Bentley. <laughs> Bentley's yeah. amazing. And he's got all the voices down, you know, and I'm so excited to, to meet or, or reconnect with the rest of the team. Uh, love that dragon man is flying around yeah. doing his thing. And the artwork was, was spectacular and, and all the characters look great. I like the new costumes a great deal. And, uh, there's some really nice humor and, and like tender family moments. And, and I just, Jeremy is such a wonderful writer when it comes to writing uh, endearing characters. And I'm looking forward to seeing him work his magic with this, this tremendous cast that we have in the FF and him, you know, doing a little bit of that Whitley magic with uh, some of our favorite characters from the Marvel universe. This made me very, very excited, doubly excited to pick up uh, future foundation. Number one on the this streets week, this week. Yep. Get hyped. Good. Get yeah. hyped. Speaking of hype, Joey, are you hyped? What did you think? Yeah, I loved it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys are just so effusive in your praise. I just, I can't even keep up. I loved it too. Um, when the big reveal happened, I immediately thought to when, like, eight months ago or whatever, mm-hmm. yep. this character was in another book, and Steve was like, can someone explain to me what's going on with <laughs> yes, this character? Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I wonder if this answers all of his questions uh, there. Um, I loved it. I, was, I gasped out loud when that happened. Um, I love how charming it is. Uh, uh, ben Grimm, obviously, is Bob's favorite character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he and Alicia here, the slot just does a wonderful job writing the two of them together. Um, and I just want everything to be happy, but obviously because this is the fantastic four, we need a little bit of a hubbub to, to go along with that yeah. joy. Um, it's fun. It's witty. It's action packed. It's got everything. And then I didn't even know that that future foundation, uh, backup was in there. Oh, so I was flipping through the pages and I was like, Oh, Whitley. Okay. And, 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 and there we go. And I, I obviously loved every second of that too. I've been following along with runaways and, uh, Julie power was a, a, a big part of that. Is it Julie? Mm-hmm. Did I make that up? Julie. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Julie power was a, yep. was a big part of that for a few issues there too, with Carolina Dean. And, um, it was nice to see all of that continuity carry over into mm-hmm. this book. Um, and obviously, I, I I did read the, the the Future Foundation stuff as well. So to kind of have all of those threads come together was a real joy. Uh, so I got two for the price of one this this week, which was which was really fun to see. Just great issue. I, I'm I will say this: I was not expecting it to be a two parter. I was reading through this book and I was like, oh man, this honeymoon, man, this one shot honeymoon, it's gonna be crazy. And then I got to the end and I was like, I gotta read another issue of this. Yeah. It's crazy. I got a cliffhanger ending unexpected. So I'm really excited to read the next issue and see how everything goes down. Right on. Yeah, uh, David, did you have a chance to read Fantastic Four? Yeah, I did. And um, I really liked it. I think this is my favorite issue of Dan's run um, uh, for sure. I think um, Sean Izaki. Um, I, I think that's yeah, how you say sure. it. Is it Izaki? Okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, Action Lab alum, Sean Izaki, I should say. Um, uh, you know, I think honestly, he should be the ongoing artist for the book. Um, he, he has a style that it's not quite, uh, Mike Waringo and it's not quite like, um, like an Ed McGinnis, but it's very, you know, it's sort of, 
it's got that kind of lush inking to it, but it's still, you know, it's kind of very bouncy and cartoony. Mm-hmm. And um, his take on the thing was really great. Um, I, I feel like, um, you know, there's something about Ben Grimm that always kind of brings up the best in Fantastic Four writers. Um, and I think Dan Slott is certainly no exception. I mean, you know, he wrote a thing series himself. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I really liked it. And I kind of love just, you know, the, the end image where, uh, you know, Ben, you know, he's only got like a minute uh, before he's going to, you know, lose his powers. And, you know, all he does, he puts up his dukes and you can kind of see that wedding ring kind of reflecting in the night. And I was like, oh, what like a what a heartfelt kind of way to, 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 to end this issue. Um, so I really liked it. I think it's Dan really playing to his strengths. Um, you know, I think my favorite things that Dan Slott does, um, you know, he's really great about character. And um, I, I, at risk of name dropping, um, I, I'm going to say I, I owe Dan a lot is that I actually um, took a writing class with an instructor who was then unknown comics writer Dan Slott. Wow. So I've, I've known Dan for about a little over 10 years. And um, and uh, so I, I always see him as, as kind of an influence and a role model. And um, his character work, I think, is really second to none. I think the way that he's able to kind of layer in continuity uh, to impact his characterization is another great strength of his. And so issues like this are really fun. Um, I think it really sort of he's so good at making us care about characters. And I wish that kind of today's comics marketplace didn't focus so much emphasis on the continuity of it all and the sort of how is this going to change the mythology for, you know, the next for the years to come, but really for the next nine months to come Um, because issues like this are where writers like Dan Slott really, they really sing uh, because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to come up with something that's going to sort of shake up continuity down the road. You just get to sort of see characters when the chips are down, you figure out who they really are. And you kind of get to see what stakes they uh, are willing to step up for. And that's really, I think, um, that's kind of, that's, that's something that's a little magical. I think that's something, that's the reason why we care about these Marvel characters 60, 70 years later. And um, so I, I think Fantastic Four, it's kind of, it is a love letter to those sorts of, you know, that's the, the, the Stan and, and, and Jack, you know, uh, uh, magic. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing it in issues like these and I, I'm glad that you guys are talking about it because I feel like it's an issue that, you know, we live in event country now and, you know, so the big sort of relaunches, you know, they're great this week, but I think, it, you know, as a, as a, it, the price of that is we get to miss out on these really kind of cool, wonderfully character driven uh, uh, issues like this one. And I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of Jeremy Whitley. Also, Action Lab alum Jeremy Whitley. Mm-hmm. Um, I every time I see him at a con, I say, "How do I get to be you when I grow up?" Um, <laughs> and uh, I think uh, uh, Future Foundation is just such a great fit for him. Um, you know, he 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 gets that sort of the, the team dynamic, and uh, in particular, the young voices. I think it's very easy to have a book about teenage superheroes that reads like how do you do fellow kids and uh, (laughs) jeremy's not about that life um i think he always writes his young characters with a real sense of authenticity um and empathy 
And uh, so, yeah, I'm really excited to see what he does with Future Foundation. Um, if this teaser is any indication, I think he's really going to kill it. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Quite the uh, quite the open discussion for Fantastic Four number 12. Thank you very much, David, for uh, for playing with us. Oh, my pleasure. All right, kids, uh, we are going to take a short break. But when we come back, we are going to get married to David Pepos. Wow. <laughs> we talk about going to the chapel. Uh, we'll see. You in Does just my mother put you up to this? Yeah, she, she just she called me. She called me a few weeks ago. She said, I want grandchildren I, by any means necessary. It's like, David's going to be doing a lot of promotion for his new book. And so I want you to corner him. You got to get him. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we'll be right back. We are back, and of course, we have David in the building to talk about going to the chapel. David is the writer of Going to the Chapel, alongside uh, Gavin was it Gouldry on art, colors yeah, by. Yeah. Do you want to do the creative team, man? Why don't you do it? <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, we've got uh, uh, me, David Pepos, the writer uh, on Going to the Chapel. We have artist Gavin Guidry uh, uh, teaming up with uh, colorist Elizabeth Kramer and uh, letterer Ariana Maher. Okay, so I'm positive that many of our long-term listeners are familiar with your work, but for those who have recently joined us, can you recant your, just a little bit of your comic book history, kind of give everybody an idea of where you came from? Sure. Um, well, uh, I, I've had kind of a zigzag career in terms of comics. I got my start as a, a, a DC Comics editorial intern. I worked on Final Crisis and Batman R.I.P. Uh, and Green Lantern Secret Origin, among other books. And then uh, served as the reviews editor at Newsarama for a better part of a decade. Um, I, uh, I made the jump to become a comics writer on my, uh, uh, on my own uh, in 2017 uh, with my breakout book Spencer and Locke over at Action Lab. We just wrapped a sequel, Spencer and Locke 2, and we are uh, going full steam ahead in my new series, Going to the Chapel, uh, here at Action Lab, that's still available for pre-order. You, uh, any listeners can still call their local comic shops through Monday, August 12th, and pre-order our first issue with the code JUL191409, 10, and 11. All right. So... Can you give our listeners a an elevator pitch for going to the chapel? Going to the chapel is like um, it's it's about a bride with cold feet whose wedding is taken over by a gang of Elvis themed bank robbers. So uh, she's going to have to become the ringleader of her own hostage situation if she wants to get everyone out in one piece, as well as to figure out what her own happily ever after is going to look like. I, I describe going to the chapel as if Die Hard had a baby with Arrested Development. And then chose to bring that baby to a wedding. <laughs> Does that baby like to play with lighters and matches? Yeah, exactly. Lighters, matches, you know, whatever, whatever they can turn into a weapon around them. Uh, that that winds up uh, uh, being our series. And uh, just like uh, all weddings, uh, you know, this book is is very much about people being sort of caught in close quarters with one another, uh, perhaps for longer than they might feel comfortable doing so. 
Um, uh, you know, when you've got sort of dysfunctional family on one side and then the police on the other, uh, these characters are going to discover that love is the ultimate hostage situation. Mm. I like it. I like it. My stepbrother is getting married in March. And let me tell you something, that's going to be a wedding and a half. I'm going to need to bring a bucket of popcorn to that thing. It's going to be such a mess. (laughs) Anyway, uh, when did you first come up with the idea for the book? Was there a particular wedding or event that served as a spark? Yeah, there was. Um, (laughs) So I started uh, work on going to the chapel right after um, the beginning of uh, uh, right after the first volume of Spencer and Locke. Because uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to do another book after that. If the book didn't do well, then I kind of knew maybe this experiment wasn't going to continue. But I, um, I really in- enjoyed the process of, of, of Spencer and Locke. And I was thinking, what could I do that might be a little different? Um, I thought, you know, romantic comedies would be kind of fun. Uh, but what really kind of uh, clued me in was uh, my oldest friend got married um, shortly after we announced the first volume of Spencer and Locke. And I was the best man, and I did a terrible job at it. I was like the worst best man in the history of best manning. Um, I, the bachelor party I planned was like the Hindenburg of bachelor. Oh. I um, so keep in mind, I live in California, and my friend lives in North Carolina, so I'm doing everything on the wrong coast anyway. And I, um, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong. The Airbnb was trashed. Um, I, I had rented, uh, some inflatable sumo suits for the backyard, not knowing that the backyard was at like a 45 degree angle. Oh, uh, I, uh, some groomsmen bailed at the last second cause they decided they didn't want to pay anymore. Um, and then I actually was hospitalized 48 hours before the event. So I actually missed the bachelor party that oh. was planned, uh, cause I was not allowed to fly due to a kidney stone. And as I was kind of checked out on painkillers, I thought to myself, boy, that was cursed. Like, I, I'm so glad it didn't happen during the wedding. And then I thought to myself, well, what if it did? <laughs> um, and that was kind of how the genesis of going to the chapel and how it got started. Because my first thought was the worst thing that could have possibly happened is if the father of the bride hired some leg breakers to persuade my friend not to go through with the wedding. But then I realized, no, that's not the worst thing at all. The worst thing would have been is if the bride suddenly got cold feet. And that really kind of the light bulb went off. Um, I thought there was a really cool emotional journey to all this because I feel like um, pop culture does not do a great job at really showing love for what it is. Love, I think, is it's a very three-dimensional Thing. And I think a lot of times pop culture treats that as the destination rather than the ongoing journey with all the sort of evolutions and permutations and swerves in the road that that might entail. And um, I feel like marriage in particular, it's a real leap of faith. Uh, you have to sort of, you know, forever is a long time. And anybody who is sort of brave enough to go through with a wedding of course, it's rolling the dice against statistics uh, to see if whether or not you can go the distance. And I, I, I felt like that could be a really intimidating thing for people. And so uh, having a story, particularly with a female lead, dealing with this sort of question of commitment and, and sort of taking these leaps of faith. And what does it take for somebody to say, till death do us part? That felt like a really kind of cool 
dramatic arc to sink my teeth into that I thought uh, the direct market for sure hadn't really tapped into. And I, to be honest, I don't think pop culture as a whole does. Are you married, David? I'm not. I'm not. Um, you know, and 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 what's interesting is um, now without without going into, into too many details because you know I, I I've come close um, in, in in the past, and you know it, it was certainly a challenging time in my life, sort of realizing oh I wasn't ready for that. You know, I was I was I was too young, and I kind of hadn't really developed as a person yet in my own right. And um, that certainly was was something that kind of went, that experience certainly helped inform this book. Um, just because, you know, picking your, your life partner, I think is sort of the most important, one of the most important decisions you can make uh, in your life. And I think I've been really fortunate now that, you know, I, I, I have a partner who's, you know, really has my back and is really supportive and has really encouraged me in ways that I, I hadn't had in, in with, with previous partners, but I meant to that, you know, of course I do feel like, you know, every sort of relationship that I've had, um, of course, definitely informs the makeup of, of going to the chapel. You know, I've, I've had my heart broken. I've broken people's hearts and sort of being able to sort of look back, on those past relationships and figure out, you know, what are the patterns that you get, you find yourself getting into? Can you break out of these patterns? How does your past inform your present, which might inform your future? Um, these are all things that, that, that go into this book. Uh, and I, uh, I think that's sort of a theme that feels a little universal. I think everybody's been in love at some point in their lives. Uh, or somebody, you know, I think everybody's had an experience with a relationship, whether or not it's worked out or not. And so I think sort of that idea of, you know, love being, you know, a really powerful driving force for people, but it's also a complicated and messy emotion at times. Hmm. Uh, I think that's what kind of gives going to the chapel its, 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 its heft and its weight. And I, uh, I think by having sort of a, a, a female perspective on it, sort of just having the, 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 a female lead, I think that's also a nice way to kind of invert some of the tropes that we see in pop culture. And I can certainly say just based on the convention circuit, um, seeing the way that women have responded to this book, um, that's been really encouraging uh, just for me as a writer. Mm-hmm. Well, have you had like people coming up to the tables and stuff to tell you things? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's funny because I, I, I I've 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 practiced my pitches uh, uh, pretty extensively at this point. I, I I tend to do about a dozen shows a year, and um, I I'm pretty outgoing when I when it comes to talking to, to prospective customers, and so um, and so you quickly kind of do trial and error, and you figure out what works for your book and what doesn't. And uh, you know, Spencer and Locke, for example, you know that's that's a that's a book that I've been able to move some decent volume on in most shows. But of course, there are people who it's just not for them. But when I am pitching going to the chapel, um, especially, you know, there there are women who like when I mention this pitch, their eyes kind of light up. And they're like, oh, I know this feeling. I get this. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I, I guess I didn't expect that, uh, you know, uh, but uh, just sort of hearing like not only is this story featuring a woman who is grappling with this idea of commitment but is taking 
sort of some very big steps on her own to uh, to, to to try to navigate her own anxieties. I think that's a powerful thing, um, and I think you know that's something that I think. I wrote going to the chapel because I thought there was an underserved audience. And uh, while I think this is a universal quality, I do think that this is a book that is tailored for people who don't necessarily have a lot of books written uh, or written or aimed at them in the direct market. Mm -hmm. How did you, when you, once you had the idea for the book, how did you come to hook up with Gavin, Liz and uh, Ariana on the title? So, um, it, so and this this goes to show how long it takes for books to be put together, especially in, in my case. I, I tend to be a fairly deliberate writer. Um, I tend to, to 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 measure twice and cut once. So sometimes I, I you know I was saying earlier I'm very jealous of Donny Cates because that's a guy who could bust out a high quality script in five days. I'm not that guy. It takes me a little while to sort of get the treatment together to make sure the story math all adds up. Um, slow and steady tends to win the race for me. And um, for Gavin, so Gavin and I, we connected, um, it was about two years ago. Um, and I saw his work on Twitter. He had posted samples for his uh, book of comicsology called The Night Driver. It was a one shot that I was really impressed with how he was able to switch gears quickly between uh, this very moody, kind of dark action to these kind of bright moments of comedy of a very expressive character design. And so I was really impressed with, with, with uh, the way he was able to juggle those two qualities. And uh, once I started talking with him about the book, we started talking about like, you know, certain influences in the mix, things like Baby Driver, uh, Breaking Bad, um, Tarantino, um, you know, uh, Hell or High Water. Uh, we were really kind of off to the races very quickly uh, in terms of the art. Uh, Gavin's also just a speed demon. The, the guy draws inhumanly fast. Um, I had to really kind of race to just keep ahead of him in terms of keeping, you know, having enough scripts ready for him. Yeah, to keep feeding him pages. Yeah, just, you know, uh, I, and, uh, you know, it was good because that also meant that I wasn't going to overthink it, uh, which sometimes I tend to do. Um, you know, it was just really kind of like, okay, get this thing done, get it to Gavin as soon as humanly possible. So you can stay ahead of him. Um, so, uh, Ariana, I, I found, so, you know, the, the thing that, that nobody talks about in comics in terms of behind the scenes is a lot of times, uh, pitches and creative teams are sort of a moving target. They're always evolving. Uh, you know, you will, you'll put it together a book and, you know, by the time that somebody picks it out, you, you know, somebody might not be available anymore to continue on. Um, Colin Bell, uh, my letterer and Spencer and Locke, he actually was originally the letterer on uh, going to the chapel and um, he wasn't able to continue in the book. And so I was looking at, you know, who are some cool letters and seeing some, some stuff that I really liked. And I had seen Ariana's work on The Six Million Dollar Man over at Dynamite. And I thought it was really fun, kind of had a nice bounce to it. Um, and so, you know, just the way that she was delivering all of the one-liners, which I thought was important. Uh, mm -hmm. So I reached out to her, and um, I, I think it was good having her on board because, you know, uh, Gavin, and I'll talk about her in a little bit, but Liz, you know, this is their direct market debuts. So, um, you know, having somebody who has sort of been in the trenches for a while and sort of can say, hey, in terms of, uh, you know, 
production specs. We got to do X, Y, Z. That was good kind of having that sort of veteran hand, uh, you know, working with me on this. Um, and then Liz was sort of actually she was kind of the final piece of the puzzle. Um, Chapel had a number of colorists uh, on board and, and due to scheduling, we weren't able to keep them on board. Um, I know uh, Jason Smith uh, from Spencer and Locke was originally uh, slated to, to, to handle the book, but uh, trying to juggle his workload on that and Spencer and Locke too proved to be kind of too much, too much to, to, to try to handle. Um, and then I spoke with uh, Mara Jane Carpenter, who uh, she was the colorist on Jade Street Protection Services over at Oh, Black. nice. And um, she did a really great job on our pitch pages. And actually she was our originally our colorist when, when actual lab accepted the book. And the problem is she had started a grad school program right when action lab took, took, took the book, but she had introduced me to, uh, to Liz at C2E2, um, the, 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 the previous year. And so, uh, because we had all hit it off during that show, I was able to hit up Liz and say, Hey, um, would you want to take over, uh, from where, you know, would you would you want to take over the book? And Liz is just I can't say enough good things about her. Liz Kramer is going to be the next superstar colorist. I I know it in my bones. Um, she's going to be the next Laura Martin. Uh, she's got such a beautiful sense of texture to her work, um, and she really she really kind of tries to stretch herself in terms of the types of colors that she uses. Um, you know, it's it's. It's rare for an action book to have a palette of gold and pink and purple, uh, but she really makes it work. And uh, she really, I love Gavin's artwork. Um, I think he's going to be the next Jamie McKelvey. But uh, once you sort of throw Liz's colors on top of it, it's really kind of just some beautiful next level looking art. And um, yeah, I, I uh, you know, it's a really fantastic team to be working with. Um, I was really impressed with how quickly the book came together. Um, I'm used to, you know, Spencer and Locke, it's a very unique kind of cocktail that we put together and it's kind of a high wire act. And so there's a lot of sort of review just to make sure that we're not, you know, we're not sort of jumping that line to becoming exploitative, but going to the chapel, everybody in the team works so fast that, um, the book came together really quickly once, once the team was sort of locked in. And, um, yeah, they're, they're really terrific. I mean, that's, that's my secret as a writer is I always try to work with teams that even if you hate my writing, you'll love the art. Um, <laughs> and I, I think, uh, you know, going to the chapel really, um, you know, really, really continues that tradition nicely, I think. So how does that work? Like you, you, you assembled the team one way or another and, do you then bring like the pitch and the team to Action Lab, yeah. and then they fall under that umbrella? They decide to take them on. How does that work? So the way that it it typically works, and there's two there's two different ways you can kind of do it, and 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 one's a little higher risk, higher reward. So most publishers, usually the minimum for a pitch is usually six pages and a cover. And then having what's called a treatment of the rest of the series, broken down issue to issue. Um, that's how I sold Spencer and Locke. That's how I uh, sold going to the chapel. However, there's also a, a school of thought that you know some people say, um, do a whole first issue. Because that way, 
you know, a publisher can say, all right, like this looks like something that we could, you know, we could sell. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of six of one, half dozen of the other on it. Um, you know, it's sort of when you put together a whole first issue, sometimes publishers will say, this is great, but we don't like the art or this is great, but can you cut two pages out of this or can you add on two pages? Um, but, uh, yeah, usually it's, you, you have your team put together and you have those first six pages in the cover just so publishers can at least have a taste of what they're getting themselves into or potentially right, right. getting themselves into. And then it's a lot of it's the waiting game. And so much of it is based on networking and timing and who, do you know, um, you know, can somebody put in a good word for you? Is there an opening in somebody's schedule? Uh, what's the strength of your last few books? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a big calculus and I, I, anybody who sort of says that they know what they're doing on it, I think is a liar because I think, you know, every pitch is different. Um, and so, uh, for going to the chapel, I can say that was a challenging pitch. Um, you know, I, I, I find it interesting because I think, uh, I think the, the way that, that the industry is moving, it's sometimes sort of in spite of itself. Um, I think there are readers who are really clamoring for, you know, uh, uh, female led books for, uh, diverse casts. Um, and I think, you know, going to the chat and, and comedy and romance and sort of genres that are outside of the sort of superhero sci-fi fantasy sort of, uh, mainstream and going to the chapel in a lot of ways, I think hit a lot of those, uh, of those categories. I mean, you know, it's a, We've got, you know, uh, Emily is our lead of the book, sort of this uh, bride with, a, with cold feet. She's got two men of color as her romantic interest. We've got this big, sprawling 15-person cast all trapped in one location uh, and sort of this kind of fun blend of an action comedy. And yet there were a lot of publishers um, who they were kind of scratching their heads and they said, we love this pitch and don't know how to sell it. And... Hmm. Um, which only made me want to do it more. I think I wanted to kind of prove a point at that point. Um, and so I, um, you know, with, uh, with going to the chapel, I, that's why I like working with action labs so much is, um, there. I, and I say this with no, with no denigration intended. I consider it's like image light, um, in terms of sort of the way that they work with creators and sort of the freedom that they give their creators and, Yes, you know, of course, Action Lab gets a percentage. You know, that's just, unless your image, that's just, you know, that's just the deal that you're going to make anywhere you go. But um, what I like about Action Lab is they really give creators latitude to tell the stories that they've pitched. And they don't micromanage and they don't get self-conscious about what their brand is and how does this fit book fit within their brand. They don't even really get that, uh, you know, you know that inside their heads about oh is this going to be a huge seller they just are like well this is a book that looks cool and um you know while of course i would love to have both you know sales and critical acclaim if i have to choose one or the other i'm always going to pick i'd I'd rather be the good wife than the big bang theory it's sort of my (laughs) it's sort of i i say that as 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 a former cbs employee uh you know the, the big bang theory might be the number one comedy on television uh, but The Good Wife is the one that's bringing home all the awards. And uh, I feel like at the end of the day, 
Um, I was saying this. Uh, I was saying this in another interview um, earlier this week. I want a Grant Morrison career. I want a Jeff Johns career. I want a Dan Slott career. Um, you know, the, the shelf life of a comics writer is not usually very long, and I want to go the distance. And the only way you can do that is your with your reputation. Um, at the end of the day, your sales numbers aren't going to mean half as much as your reputation. And so that's sort of always kind of the thing that I'm shooting for with my books. And I think that's something that Action Lab has been really good about. And, and uh, so that's what's made them such a, a great home and a great uh, a great base to work with. Very cool, man. So you mentioned before that you were working on Spencer and Locke 2 whilst making plans for going to the chapel. How did you divide your time between both titles? So, you know, it's interesting because um, the timing it actually wound up working out decently well. But I um, so I started work on going to the chapel before Spencer and Locke 2 was approved. Um, like I. I I had told uh, our, our publisher, Brian Seaton, that I had some ideas uh, for volume two, uh, including sort of taking the Calvin and Hobbes riff and expanding it across the funny pages with Beetle Bailey. And um, I remember actually the big thing was convincing uh, Jorge, my, my artist, uh, George Santiago Jr., uh, convincing him that, hey, this book was like good enough that we should continue with it. Um you know, just because I think we had, you know, originally discussed it as a done in one, um, you know, in, in, in case anybody had, you know, liked it, I had ideas for sequels. So while we were kind of waiting for Action Lab and for George to sort of all decide, yeah, I, we should go ahead with this, I had been working on the treatment for going to the chapel. And um, I, it was a tough one to, to it, was, it was a tough book to, to really get my head around. You know, we have 15 characters. They're all in one location. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of, it's, it's just as much doing like a football play as it is writing. Cause you have to choreograph where everyone is at any one time. And, um, I, by the time that I had gotten that all put together, I, we had gotten Spencer and Locke to approved. So I think by the time I'd started work on Spencer and Locke two, we had gotten pitch pages ready for chapel. And so I was shopping that around while I was writing Spencer and Locke too. And it took a long time, uh, for, to sort of go through everybody in terms of trying to sell chapel. Um, the, the worst part about pitching comics is that so much hurry up and wait. Um, and you know, especially if a publisher doesn't know you, um, you know, they don't necessarily have the incentive to get back to you right away. So there are plenty of publishers who it would take three months and they would say, oh, you know, I like this, but it's not for us. Um, so I kind of I was able to kind of bounce back and forth in between books. So by the time I had written uh, going to the chapel, I, or I by the time we sold going to the chapel, I was writing Spencer and Locke, too. But by the time that the art team had caught up with me on going to the chapel, I had finished writing Spencer in Locke 2, so I could then go switch gears quickly and finish the rest of going to the chapel mm. while I was then overseeing the art for Spencer in Locke 2. Uh, it, was, uh, it was definitely a little stressful at times, especially when we were racing that deadline to finish up Spencer in Locke 2. 
Um, but uh, I think it was around, I think we finished Spencer and Locke to the artwork. I think we finished it in like October or November of last year. And so I think I was in the middle of the third issue of going to the chapel. So it made sort of the back half of, uh, of, of chapel a, a little smoother. Um, and, uh, but then of course, as I was finishing up overseeing the artwork for going to the chapel, then I had to promote Spencer and Locke. And then by the time we finished promoting Spencer and Locke, I, uh, we then went in the middle of promoting going to the chapel. So, um, haven't had a lot of sleep is I guess the, <laughs> the, the, the long way of saying this. Um, and I will say when I'm done promoting going to the chapel in February, I'm going to, if I'm not taking a vacation at minimum, I'm going to take a nap. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds both exciting and exhausting at the same time. It, 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 it is. Um, and you know, uh, to be honest, really the, 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 the fun challenge that we've had with chapel is, you know, um, is is promoting a book in the middle of July 4th and San Diego Comic-Con. Um, that has been sort of a, a, a learning experience for me um, because so much of a book's success, there's so many things that go into a book's success besides what's on the paper, or besides what's on the page. And this is something that kind of was drilled into me when I worked at CBS, but this is something that I'm still finding new ways uh, uh, of how that bears out. Um, there's so much about your release date. What's your release schedule? Uh, you know, what books are you going up against? Uh, you know, what kind of buzz are you getting? What's your print run in terms of how fast can you sell out? Um, you know, is there any sort of multimedia interest in, in your books? Um, you know, these are all things that, you know, if you think you can control them, you're deluding yourself. Uh, it's more of these, it's, it's more like you're on a boat or you're, you're, you're canoeing down a river and these are the sorts of waves that you have to keep an eye out for and then just lean into them as best you can. Damn, dude, <laughs> this is a night of learning for me. I'm just <laughs> soaking all this information in. Yeah. So I got to ask why the bad Elvis gang? Why not the, like the Willie Nelson widowers or the Michael Myers matrimony murderers or something like that? So I, um, I'm a big fan of point break, the original point break. Yes. Uh, that, that was kind of another influence that went into this. I love the idea of having a gang of bank robbers that had their own shtick. And I was thinking kind of, you know, well, what would I do, you know, in, in it for a wedding book? And, uh, the, the, the bad Elvis gang came up pretty quickly. Just, uh, you know, the idea of uh, sort of, uh, you know, the quickie weddings on the Vegas Strip, uh, you know, Elvis impersonators, um, that felt like kind of a fun thing. And I felt like it was iconography that hadn't been tapped yet. And I thought it was kind of, a, you know, a fun way to show the irreverence of the gang as well. You know, you have young Elvis, old Elvis, African-American Elvis, dead Elvis, uh, dead zombie Elvis, I should say. Um, and so I, I thought that was kind of, that was like a fun, unique way to kind of, uh, expand on, a, on a iterations of the same theme, I guess. Um, and it also, I think speaks to the kind of level of sort of playfulness and stylishness that we wanted in this book. Uh, we, you know, I think we toe the line a lot of times between like something that's funny and something that's stylish and something that's cool and something that's even a little badass. 
Um, and I think Elvis as an icon really kind of runs like kind of runs the gamut for those things. Um, you know, he, he can be as cool as you want him to be. Uh, and so I, I, I was really, it also, I think kind of speaks to sort of the Southern, uh, uh, undertones of, of this book. Um, you know, we, we, uh, the book of course takes place in the Southwest. Um, you know, we talked a lot about sort of like Albuquerque and, and, and sort of rural California, um, and Texas, but we also talked a little bit about Nashville, um, and sort of that kind of, uh, almost sort of like country proto rock, you know, kind of swing to it. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's a little Tarantino in that way where you're taking sort of all these kind of different random influences and styles and you throw them in a blender and you see how it turns out. And I think chapel, that's, that's a book that's very similar to that. Have you ever eaten a peanut butter and banana sandwich? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Those are great. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 yes, I've definitely, that used to be my, 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 uh, my, my, uh, post-workout, uh, treat of choice. <laughs> Bob, you chuckled when I mentioned the sandwich. Have you tried it? No, I, uh, marshmallow fluff and I don't get along. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So aside from Die Hard and you mentioned Point Break, are there any other films or television series or albums that served as inspiration for the series? Absolutely. Um, so the two movies that were really the biggest influences for going to the chapel uh, were Dog Day Afternoon and Death at a Funeral. Um, those are those are movies that I think a lot of people don't necessarily know, which is a shame because they're terrific. Um, Dog Day Afternoon is uh, it's an Al Pacino movie. It's a story. It's actually based on a true story. It's uh, about um, a, 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 a gang of bank robbers who, you know, it's supposed to be a simple smash and grab at a local bank and they flub it up and suddenly they're kind of held there. It's, it's a hostage situation and the cops are outside and it's how, you know, can Al Pacino and, and his group make it out in one piece? And you start to learn more about like the history of these bank robbers. And the funniest part for me was seeing how, the line between the bank robbers and the hostages start to get blurred very quickly. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it doesn't take very long for Al Pacino to suddenly be like a neighborhood hero when he's shouting Attica at the cops yeah. because, you know, they got a little over aggressive with him. Um, I really, I really enjoyed that movie a lot. And I thought the idea of sort of seeing how people, you know, how, how people's relationships and dynamics change very quickly in a hostage situation, I thought was kind of a fun dynamic. And then uh, Death at a Funeral, I think, really picks up on a lot of those similar themes. There's actually two versions of Death at a Funeral. There's a British version and a Chris mm -hmm. Rock remake. Um, I, I really love the British version. But it's, um, it's, it's the story of the world's worst funeral. Doesn't that uh, have Peter Dinklage in it? Yes. Peter Dinklage. Ah, I've seen this. Yeah, he's in both uh, versions of it. Okay. And it, 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 it is... Is like some of the bleakest comedy I've ever seen, but I'm like crying every time I watch it. It's, you know, a, a, a man dies and his family gets together for his funeral. And so his, his oldest son is kind of a wannabe writer and he's, he's writing his, the eulogy, but he's so shy and in his head, he can't, you know, he, he, he doesn't think he likes the, the you know, his, his speech. Meanwhile, his younger brother is this like super accomplished writer who's also super shifty and doesn't want to help pay for the funeral. And then meanwhile, all the extended family, like there's all sorts of, of stuff going on with them. 
Um, you know, there's there's uh, uh, some friends of the family. They 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 see that like a cousin uh, who who dumped him is is at the funeral, and so he's trying to get back with this girl, even though she's got a boyfriend who. It, she's sort of trying to use this funeral to introduce new, her new boyfriend to the family because they're they they've gotten engaged and she hasn't told anybody yet. And meanwhile, this poor boyfriend, he's so nervous. They give him what they think is Xanax and what turns out to be LSD. Yep, yep. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, there's all sorts of things. Everything everything that could go wrong does go wrong, including Peter Dinklage. Uh, trying to blackmail the family because he says, oh, this guy in the casket, I was his lover, and I have photos. Um, and so I love I love that that movie. Um, you know, I think the idea of family, of dysfunctional families getting, when you have to shove them in close proximity for an extended period of time, the masks of civility start to slip very quickly. And people start getting uncomfortably real with one another, like weirdly real with one another. And that sort of thing just cracks me up. Uh, I think just, you know, family can be kind of the your, your, your own worst enemy at times because uh, they're the ones that know you so well. And I uh, sort of taking that approach in sort of an action movie kind of sense, um, that's kind of fun. For me, that's why I always talk about it. Sort of, if the Bluth family from Arrested Development got caught in a bank robbery, it'd be very similar to what happens here in Chapel, uh, because the Anderson family—they're very rich, they're very entitled, they're very clueless, and you know, while the Bad Elvis gang might consider themselves to be professional criminals, a hostage situation only gets to be as professional as your hostages. Um, and so, kind of seeing how the bank robbers and the hostages, their interactions start to blur and you start seeing some very interesting and unexpected um, alliances start to pop up uh, uh, over this. Um, that kind of wound up being the most rewarding part of the book for me, I think, is being able to take these very weird, goofy, dysfunctional characters that we all recognize. Um, that's, I, I think... Being able to take them and give them their own personalities and their own arcs, um, I think that's the thing I'm probably proudest of in the whole book. It's funny that you mentioned Arrested Development as as part of your creative process, because when I was reading Going to the Chapel, Emily's mother yes. immediately reminded me of Lucy Bluth. Yes, absolutely. That is uh, certainly, uh, uh, you know, I, I yes, um, you know, there, there are certain, you know, Part of my process when I'm coming up with characters and their voices, I, I, I find a very helpful process is I think, oh, well, you know, what actor, whose voice would I think of when I think of this character? Um, you know, with Spencer and Locke, I, you know, I thought a lot about uh, Clive Owen in Sin City and then eventually uh, Justin Thoreau in The Leftovers. Um, and so for this, you know, I was thinking of sort of, you know, with Emily, I was thinking like old school Reese Witherspoon. Um, with Jesse, you know, sometimes I was thinking about Sterling K. Brown from This Is Us. Um, you know, with uh, Tom, I was thinking of uh, Han from The Fast and the Furious. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, Walt is, you know, Jeff Bridges was all over that. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I try to sort of do like a patchwork of like, you know, are these particular actors I think of? Are these particular people I know from my own life? 
or are there particular experiences that I've gone through that can kind of help inform these things? Uh, but yes, I, I, uh, I thought a lot about Arrested Development just because they are such weird people. And I feel like part of the appeal of Arrested Development is we've, we all know what weird dysfunctional family looks like. Uh, I, think, I think everybody has had experience with that. Some of that, I think, perhaps more traumatic than others. Uh, but I feel like everybody, nobody grows up in a vacuum. And so everybody kind of knows what a weird family looks like, uh, whether it's the best of families or the worst of families. And so I think that's something I, uh, anybody can relate to in this book. So aside from the, like, let's say the three major characters in the book, yeah. uh, other characters such as Harriet, BJ, Lucy, who among them was your favorite uh, to write? Oh man, that's, that's a tough call. I, Cause I, you know, there's so many of them that I really enjoyed. Um, Grandma Harriet, I, I think, is, is yes. my favorite. Um, she was actually she was she was inspired by by my real life grandmother, uh, Grandma Helen. Um, you know, I, I uh, so if I get struck by lightning anytime in the next six months, you know what happened. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, my my Grandma Helen, she was a real pistol, um, a real drill sergeant, and I feel like if she was held hostage at a wedding she would be the first one to throw some sass at, 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 at the, uh, at the people holding her hostage. Um, but there's, you know, I tried to find something that I enjoyed about everybody. Um, you know, BJ, I think was kind of me poking fun at myself a little bit for me being the world's worst, best man. Um, <laughs> you know, I feel like, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying, you know, uh, Olive, the flower girl, she was super fun. Um, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, uh, Walt, Sheriff Walt, he was super fun. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, he actually, he, he was based on, um, you know, and I say this is, is a huge compliment. Um, my, my oldest friend's mom, she's like, she takes no prisoners. She takes no shit. Sorry. Uh, she, okay. you know, she takes no garbage from anybody. And so I felt like, um, Walt kind of speaks in the same language. He's very direct. Um, and he does not beat around the bush when he's ticked off at you. So I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like even, even father Patrick, um, who I think readers, I, he's, he's a fun character. He's just, he's, he's the local priest with an alcohol problem. Um, you know, just even little flourishes like him. I think they're, you know, I tried to find if there was nothing fun to write about any character, I, I cut them out of the mix pretty quick. <laughs> I want to ask you other questions, but I don't want to spoil anything. All right, we're going to move on before I make a mistake. All right. Do you have any plans to continue the series of Action Lab asks for another volume? Have you thought beyond the initial four issues? Uh, I certainly I mean, look, never say never. I apologize for uh, Holly uh, giving her two cents in the background. Um, if the father of the bride can pull off a part two, who's to say we couldn't? Um, you know, I I, uh, I wrote going to the chapel as a as sort of a done in one. But if the demand is there, you know, the great thing about this series is it's about growth and change. And, uh, you know weddings aren't the only opportunities characters have to grow. So, uh, 
Yeah, I could certainly. I there. Let's just say I've got ideas if people really wanted them. All right. Well, we wish you the best of luck. It's a hell of a series, and we think people are going to have a lot of fun with it. So who knows? Maybe we'll get another one. The honeymoon. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, or the baby shower. Oh, somebody's been thinking about this. All right. So we're going to skip ahead here and we're going to play a little game with you, David, for our 400th podcast. Bronwyn uh, played 20 questions with everyone, and uh, we thought it would be fun to play 20 questions with David Pepos. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to read you two things. You have to choose between them. And it's knee-jerk reactions. No explanations necessary. I'm just going to give you two things. You give me an answer, and we move on to the next one. Are you ready? Ready. All right, here we go. Akira or Evangelion? Evangelion. (laughs) The Simpsons or King of the Hill? Simpsons. Xbox or PlayStation? PlayStation. Steak or salad? Steak. Sledding or water balloon fight? Letting. Read the synopsis or blind buy? Read the synopsis. Comic or novel? Comic. Comedy or horror? Comedy. Independent or the big two? Independent. Theme park or water park? Theme park. Hot dog or hamburger? Hot dog when done right. (laughs) Good answer. Watercolor or ink? Ink. Color or black and white? Color. Comic-Con or in-store signing? Ooh. Um, You know, I love my stores. In-store signing. All right. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Digital or vinyl? Digital. Ooh. Whiskey or wine? Whiskey. Treehouse or pillow fort? I've never had a treehouse. I'd love a treehouse. All right. Last one. Uh Calvin or Hobbes? Calvin. Wow. I thought that was going to be harder for you to choose. You know, I, uh, after being in that, in that mindscape for, for the better part of three years, um, you know, I mean, Locke is, Locke's my lead. And so I, I, uh, you know, Calvin, Calvin, of course, being his inspiration, uh, you know, I, I love, I love Hobbes, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's very chicken or the egg who, you know, do you, know, do you have, you certainly don't have a Hobbes without a Calvin, but do you have a Calvin without a Hobbes? Oh, <laughs> why is the chicken really crossing the road? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, 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 it's, it's, I've been, I've been in those, in those characters heads for, for a long enough time that, uh, I, I know which side of the bread my butter's on for for that duo. Hmm. All right. Last question, uh, pertaining yeah. to your answers and then we'll move on with the rest of the show. What yeah. is your idea of a, of a well done hot dog? Ooh, well, um, you know, it's it's got to be grilled. Um, yes. I think, you know, there are certain 
brands of hot dogs that I, you know, not all hot dog brands are created equal and not all hot dog seasonings are created equal. Um, I have, I've had the pleasure of having certain hot dogs that, you know, they have seasoned it and grilled it in such a way. And the toasted bun is, 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 is not optional. You have to do a toasted bun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, I think good hot dog done well is rare. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it's one of those things. I probably eat more hamburgers than I do hot dogs, but it's not because I dislike hot dogs. It's because so many places don't do them very well. I like your answers, David. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Does anybody have any questions for David about going to the chapel before we move on? Really quickly, we were talking about all the sorts of movies. Uh, yeah. And you mentioned Clive Owen. Have you seen Inside Man, the Spike Lee? I have. I love Inside Man. Um, and I for sure watched that um, for for uh, uh, as inspiration for 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 this. I I watched a ton of hostage movies uh, just to kind of get a sense of the rhythm and kind of different different things that I saw people doing. Inside Man, uh, Toy Soldiers with Sean Astin. Wouldn't think that would be a a, a, a fun book, but that was or a fun movie. But that was actually a super fun movie. Uh, hostage with uh, Bruce Willis, um, of course, Die Hard. Um, there were a ton of others taking a Pelham one, two, three. Um, so there were a lot of different, um, you know, hostage, uh, things that I watched. Um, but yes, huge fan of inside man. That's one of my favorite hostage movies. I wish more people kind of knew that movie. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I dig that one a lot. I have, I have two really odd ones for you. Okay. Shoot. Finding them may be a little more difficult, but you never know. A lot of stuff around these days. Yeah. One is called The Incident. Okay. Made in the middle 60s. Uh, very early Martin Sheen, for instance. Uh, Tony yeah. Lobianco. He, uh, I don't want to say too much. He and a buddy of his take a bunch of hostages in our New York City subway train and just start abusing folks on the train. Okay. Really harrowing, but really, really, really worth seeing. And one that, that struck me about your book is a TV movie from, I think it's 71, called Day of the Wolves. Okay. And it's sort of Tarantino-esque in a way. And I'm sure he saw it, too, because he and I are nearly the same age. A bunch of really clever bank robbers all uh-huh. decide to become very anonymous. They put on fake beards and jumpsuits, and they only refer to themselves as numbers. They're wolves. Okay. They actually go out into the okay. desert and pretend to take over this ghost town to, to rehearse and then show up at a town and take over the joint, blow the bridge. They're going to rob every bank in the place. Wow, that's super cool. I like that a lot. Yeah. Pretty violent TV movie for the early 70s. I think it was ABC when they were doing their movie of the week thing, but check that one out. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That sounds great. All right, everybody's got some movie homework to go yeah. and do. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. No problem. All right. We are going to uh, quickly move back into our regular show by talking about the books that we're looking forward to on the shelves this coming week. Bob, why don't you tell us what you're picking up? Well, of course, since we just chatted it up a whole bunch, Future Foundation number one is this week. Invisible Woman number two. Lois Lane number two is this week. And we have... The soon-to-be-concluding Giant Days, number 
Ah. Yeah, Joey, we have another one. We still got, know, yeah, we got a I couple know. left. They're coming. They're all in. All right, Joey. What do you pick it up? Uh, Lois Lane number two, House of X number two. Let's go! I'm in it <laughs> to win it. Unless something drastic happens, I will be along for the ride week to week. Um, sea of Stars number two as well. Third issue of Thumbs by Sean Lewis. I've been a big fan of that issue. Uh, uh, sorry, that series as well. So I'll definitely check that out. DC East, anybody? Number four. <laughs> Let's go! Zombie Batman. Spoilers, I guess. <laughs> um, and the seventh issue of um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer as well. And of course, I would be remiss not to mention Agents of Atlas number one. Let's go, Agents of Atlas. <laughs> All right, on my list, uh, I also have Giant Days number 53, Batman number 76, Deceased number four, Lois Lane number two, Crowded number eight also comes out. Die number, is it six or seven? Six. That comes out. Okay. Uh, sea of Stars number two, like Joey said. I'm going to be checking out Absolute Carnage number one. Uh, Arrow number two is also on my list, as well as Future Foundation number one, House of X number two, and Invisible Woman number two. Big week. Yeah. Lots I of, think, uh, well, we're coming I think off a fifth week, so. Isn't there a new Lenore this week? Oh, Bob, I wouldn't know anymore. Yes, I think there's a new number one this week. Oh, there's a new number one? Yes. Oh. I for sure thought you were going to talk about that. I might have to now. I have to add two things to my list. You guys are <laughs> costing me money. I want to read Agents of Atlas, and I probably want to read... I feel like I've been away from Lenore for so long, and those are my roots, man. I know, and it is Ro- it is Roman Dirge. So, oh, checked. First right. new issue in five years. It says right here. I can hear the comic shop now rubbing their little hands together, <laughs> thinking about my money, going. <laughs> All right. Uh, so before we pass the mic over to Joey for some of our closing statements. David, why don't you just remind everybody one more time about one uh, going to the chapel is hitting stores and hit them with that uh, that pre-order code as well. Absolutely. Uh, first issue of going to the chapel hits comic shops and comiXology nationwide on September 4th. And you can still pre-order the first issue through your local comic shop through Monday, August 12th. You can give them the code JUL191409 for uh, Lisa Stirl's amazing A cover. JUL191410 for Mon House's uh, really gritty purple and green cover. And then JUL191411 for uh, Gavin Guidry's uh, really incredible C cover. All right, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, best of luck again to you and to your creative team and to Action Lab on the success of the book. I look forward to uh, hearing people talk about it once it starts hitting the stands. And uh, we can they can join in and find out what we know. Yeah, yeah. pre-order. Right. got a pre-order. Gotta yeah, got to pre-order that gotta stuff. Pre-order. Uh, Bob, do you have anything before we get to Joey? No, sir. All right, Joey, it is all you. Yeah, I just wanted to take a moment uh, and w- uh, say a, a, a little tribute to Toni Morrison, who passed away this Tuesday um, when we're recording. Um, Toni Morrison, author, essayist, teacher, her commitment to 
goodness and voice and the power of storytelling uh, has inspired the entire world, specifically black Americans, but everyone to, to value their own stories and challenge any status quo that says they are not worthy. Um, she received the Pulitzer, the Nobel, the Medal of Freedom, so many other accolades for her work. She published The Bluest Eye in 1970 at the age of 39, having woken up early each morning to write before taking her kids to school. I mean, come on. Wow. Uh, since then, literally changing the face of literature. Um, I've taught her since I started teaching. Uh, I've had students write in their college essays about studying her her work and how it, it, it changed their perspective as well. Um, she spoke at my graduation uh, from Rutgers in 2011. Oh, wow. And she said a few things that I, I'll just share now with, with us that I think um, really hit. Uh, um, she... She talked about how, you know, a hundred years from now, what would people look back on and think about what we're doing in our country? Um, And she said, quote, perhaps these people a hundred or more years from now will gasp and recoil as they see that the language at the feet of the Statue of Liberty has been paved over and they discover the dark history of the 21st century. Well, maybe not. Maybe not. Perhaps by that time, generations descended from you, taught by you, inspired by you, will have imagined and forged a world worthy of you. I'm getting for Clem just thinking. From my point of view, your life is already a miracle of chance waiting for you to shape its destiny. From my point of view, your life is already artful, waiting, just waiting for you to make it art. So to Toni Morrison, to everyone that's been inspired by her um rest in power queen you are an inspiration for the world that was lovely Beautiful. Right? very nice read a book all righty <laughs> <laughs> perfect way to end this thing all right we've reached the end of this week's edition of the talking comics podcast i want to thank david again for coming by and hanging out with us for the whole show it's been a pleasure man my pleasure thanks so much for having me Right on. As always, you can send us your comments or questions through our email, podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com. We are also on Twitter at Talking Comics. Don't forget to check out talkingcomicbooks.com for reviews from our fantastic contributors. And please go listen to Talking Valiant, D&D Adventure, Bend is Assembled, and of course, the ladies of Valhalla, who have just recorded a brand new episode for Kelly Thompson's Story Killer. Look for that believe this friday bob where can our listeners find you as always the old-fashioned email bob ryer at talkingcomicbooks.com joey at joey Bergino. david what are your emails and twitterers sure you can find me on twitter it's just pepos d it's my last name and first initial and you can follow my books spencer and Locke. it's just one word and go to the chapel on facebook twitter and instagram nice there it is uh, and I am at dead underscore anchorus on the internets. So for Bob, be nice to each other. For Joey, adios. For David, pre-order my book. <laughs> <laughs> I am Steve. Be excellent to each other. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time on the Talking Comics podcast. To be continued.